Tonight I'm going to talk about a, a Japanese idea, wabi-sabi. And in order to build up to that, um, I'll first talk about our own culture, which is kind of the opposite. Um, I've been reflecting on this. You know, it, it's funny. There, there are some ways that I think we're all kind of spoiled children a little, you know? I mean... If you think about this situation of our lives, we walk around with the entire internet in our pocket. Any piece of information we could ever want is at our fingertips. Any product that we want, that we can afford, we can get delivered right to our door. It's this kind of insane, you know, almost miraculous uh, level of access that we just have at our fingertips now, you know, if we could show this to someone from, like, the 1850s, they would be astonished. Their their jaw would be on the floor, you know? And what do we do? We take it for granted. You know? And it it's like, there's a way that almost any any level of miracle we, we're put into, we, we recalibrate our expectations and, ah, this isn't so good. You know, like that kind of thing. You know, and just think how many times you've heard yourself or someone else say, you know, can't believe this information, not on the website, or, you know, can't believe that that thing I ordered isn't going to arrive till next Thursday, you know. And it's, I think it's instructive for all of us just to, to take a good look at, you know, the times that we have temper tantrums like that, you know. And what does it say about our expectations? I think there's something about this situation that almost normalizes a kind of expectation of having it all. Or wanting it all, you know. And I was thinking about this wanting it all. You know, it, it's so funny if you think about, again, someone in the 1850s in a small town, they might have a, just a general store. That's where they got all their goods, you know, anything that they didn't grow or farm or something themselves. Um, you know, whatever limited variety they had in that general store, that was it. That was the choice, you know. And if you think about today, you know, it's, it's not just I want this product, but I want this brand and this particular color. Not the smallest size, but the second smallest size. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. All these specifications. Incidentally, Buddhism calls that capacity of those to, to zero in on those precise specifications. It calls that discrimination. It actually says, ultimately, that's one of the blessings of the human state if we use those discriminations on our own mind states rather than on, you know, what's the best brand of ketchup, that kind of thing. So wanting it all is is certainly a, you know, a very interesting um, attitude to take just toward commodities and purchases and that sort of thing. I think it also plays out in human relationships. Uh, It plays out in a very strong way in dating, for example. People who are dating, 
wanting it all, wanting the ideal partner, this sort of thing. Um, and there, I think it really dovetails in many ways with fears around connection, fears around intimacy, you know. If I have a deep fear of intimacy that I don't want to admit, all I have to do is cling to this, well, I want it all, you know, and then everyone I meet, well, that that person's not good enough, that one, you know, I can, I can you know, knock away any particular choice, and then I'm perf- protected from ever having to confront my own, my own fear of intimacy. And even in the way we look at our own lives, and there it's not so much even um, wanting it all, but having it all, or, you know, the story that we're supposed to have it all, you know, the story that we're supposed to, you know, be the person with, you know, the shining happy family and the, the successful job and look at smart I am and look at spiritually realized I am and physically fit and everything else, you know. And it's almost like this... Um, it's almost the, the expectation of this culture that we're supposed to all fit into this cookie-cutter ideal. And it really dovetails in, in many ways, when we look at our personal lives, it dovetails with perfectionism. Um, and perfectionism is just a, a, a harsh tyrant. It's ultimately driven by shame. It's very sad. So that's our culture, which you well know. And the Japanese have very different perspective on a lot of these issues. This Japanese term, wabi-sabi. Um, sabi, I think, is the older of the two terms, and sabi has something to do, originally had to do with something being old, but old in a kind of an elegant way, like it was almost an appreciation for something that was, had aged well. Um, wabi originally meant something like loneliness, you know, it might be you say of a, you know, a tree out in a desolate place in the middle of the forest or the kind of state that a hermit was trying to achieve. Um, it, and it also had a connotation of melancholy to it. Um, and these two terms were put together in the Zen tradition and really, you know, very much influenced by the Buddhist worldview, especially the Buddhist idea of impermanence. And it's such a hard term to define simply because, you know, to some extent it's about the, the beauty of something that has, has aged and almost the melancholy of something that's aged, but it also almost has a lighthearted connotation, you know, almost a playful connotation. So it's a, it's a very hard word to define precisely. But one way to think about it is, for example, in the tea ceremony, which is one of the, um, one of the practices within Zen Buddhism, it would be inappropriate in the tea ceremony to have a brand new kettle, like a factory fresh, take it out of the box, use it for the first time kind of kettle, you know, it's more or less expected that in the tea ceremony, you're going to use a kettle that has been well used. Maybe it has a few dings in it, a few scratches, you know. It's a kettle that has a story to it, you know. And there's an appreciation for the fact that it has a story. And in some way, it's an individual, 
unlike, you know, all the new kettles, which are cookie-cutter copies of each other, you know, that sort of thing. And it's... The, I think the thing that's brilliant about it is it picks on, picks up on something very deep in nature. You know, I, I like to hike a lot, and I love the oak trees of California. No two oak trees are the same, you know? Every one is different, and in fact, that's what's glorious about them, that each one is different, you know? And you can actually see, if you study the oak tree, there's a story there, you know? There might, an oak tree growing by itself might grow up tall and straight, an oak tree that was growing in the shade of other trees, you'll see it reaching for sunlight in some way. Um, there's a story to it, and you can, you can see, as it were, its struggle. Its struggle to survive is part of who it is, you know? And that's what gives it its beauty. And so it's easy to see with oak trees. It's a little harder to see with ourselves, you know? But really, as I've been thinking about this, I think in some ways the most beautiful aspect of any of us is when we're on the edge of growth, when we're in that place of, of struggling, you know, I know I've screwed up, you know, dozens and dozens of times, now I'm trying to do something different, now I'm trying to be more noble, I'm trying to be a more heroic or courageous version of myself. You know, when we're at that edge, it's not when we're polished and, you know, I got this all handled, like that sort of thing. You know, and it, it's not when we're in the struggle, but we're stuck and we're needy. I mean, we're not even attracted to ourselves when we're like that. Um, but it's really when we're in that place of, that dynamic place of growth, that dynamic place of, of being at our edge. And I really think in some ways the privilege of being in a sangha like this is that we often witness each other in that place. It really is one of the blessings of being in a sangha. So I'm going to share the quote sheet. First I'll share it with the Zoomies. you can just leave over there. So kind of a shocking one to begin. This is from a, a poem by Yeats. Yeats is a, is a man, he was in love with this woman, Maud Gone, when he was younger, and Maud Gone rejected him and married someone else, and for years he pined for her. But later on in life, he, it's almost like his anima developed this other character, Crazy Jane. She was this wild woman. And so this is one of the Crazy Jane poems. Crazy Jane talks to the bishop, and this is just the last lines of the poem. Love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement, for nothing can be whole, soul or whole that has not been rent. 
And here rent means the, uh, the past participle of to rend, to rip apart. So nothing that has been ripped apart can be, you know, nothing that has not been ripped apart can be whole or soul. So a, kind of a shocking uh, juxtaposition of, of what is most desirable with what is most repulsive. Carl Jung said, one must bear in mind that there's considerable difference between perfection and completion. And this is, this is actually one of the major points in Jung's, uh, in, in all of Jung's later writings, that, you know, we, we have a culture for a long time, I mean, going back to the Middle Ages even, we've had a culture that encouraged perfection and perfectionism. Um, and there's something damaging about that. Whereas pursuing completion, pursuing wholeness, there's something healing about that. I love this one by Dolly. Have no fear of perfection. You'll never reach it. (laughs) From Richard Powell. Wabi Sabi nurtures all that is authentic by acknowledging three simple realities. Nothing lasts. Nothing is finished. Nothing is perfect. Alan Watts said, to Taoism, that which is absolutely still or absolutely perfect is absolutely dead. For without the possibility of growth and change, there can be no Tao. In reality, there's nothing in the universe which is completely perfect or completely still. It is only in our minds that such concepts exist. Jack Gilbert said, the Japanese think it strange we paint our old wooden houses when it takes so long to find the wabi in them. They prefer the bonsai tree after the valiant blossoming is over, the leaves fallen, when bareness reveals the merit born in the vegetable struggling. Ramdas said, You are loved just for being who you are, just for existing. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Your shortcomings, your lack of self-esteem, physical perfection, or social or economic success, none of that matters. No one can take away this love from you, and it will always be here. Tom Robbins said, People are never perfect, but love can be. And that is one and only one way that the mediocre and the vile can be transformed, and doing it makes it that. Loving makes love. Loving makes itself. We waste time looking for the perfect lover instead of creating the perfect love. Wouldn't that be the way to make love stay? Leonard Cohen, in in a song lyric, said, Ring the bells that you still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. The Zen teacher Bernie Glassman said, when you care about perfection, you care about an expectation. But there's also, care, there's also caring for where I am right now, for what's happening right now. When I spend time with students, they tell me that they're reading something in a book or heard something from a teacher that they don't think they're living up to. And I tell them, take care of yourself right now. Befriend what is happening, not just what you're supposed to be or the world should be like. This is where you are right now. So how do you care for yourself this minute? Parker Palmer said, 
Wholeness does not mean perfection. It means embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. Tara Brock said, there's something wonderfully bold and liberating about saying yes to our entire imperfect and messy life. Brian Stevenson said, I guess I had always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we are fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we never would have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. Elaine de Botton said, Donald Keene observed that the Japanese sense of beauty has long sharply differed from Western counterparts. It has been dominated by a love of irregularity rather than symmetry, the impermanent rather than the eternal, and the simple rather than the ornate. Frank LaRue Owen said simply, heart-mind, left to its natural state, is vast as a panorama of nature. Beth Kempton said, we have to stop telling ourselves that everyone is watching, waiting for us to fail. They really aren't. Daniel Kopecki said, despite what you may believe, you can disappoint people and still be good enough. You can make mistakes and still be capable and talented. You can let people down and still be worthwhile and deserving of love. Everyone has disappointed someone they care about. Everyone messes up, lets people down, and makes mistakes. Not because we're inadequate or fundamentally inept, but because we're imperfect and fundamentally human. Expecting anything different is setting yourself up for failure. Liz Russell said the Japanese have another term, kintsugi. This is the art of repairing broken poverty with gold inlay. Instead of discarding the broken piece, it is restored. The the gold serves to highlight the break and becomes part of the history and presence of the piece. Instead of a breakage being the end of something, it is the celebration of what was and what is now. The fault is not hidden, but highlighted. The piece is perfectly imperfect. Instead of hiding our imperfections, we could proudly display them, even highlighting them, unconcerned with the increased attention toward our fault lines. What a liberating feeling that could be. Daphne Rose Kingma said, If you have trouble loving yourself, imagine that everyone in the world is a hungry soul whose life has been imperfect. Like you, they had imperfect parents. Like you, they had tragedies and difficulties befell them. If you could hear each person's story, you probably would be moved to tears and want to reach out and embrace that person. You'd want to tell them that in spite of everything they've gone through, they have great value. Anthony St. Martin said, highly sensitive people are too often perceived as weaklings or damaged goods. To feel intensely is not a symptom of weakness. It is the trademark of the truly alive and compassionate. It is not the empath who is broken. It is society that has become dysfunctional and emotionally disabled. There's no shame in expressing your authentic feelings. Never be ashamed to let your tears shine a light in this world.